The Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk. We will discuss what is making the news. Uh, I'm joined this morning by Fergus Finlay, former chief executive of Barnardo's and, of course, columnist with the Irish Independent. Gina London, international communications strategist and a former CNN correspondent. And John Cunningham, uh, former chair of the Immigrant Council of Ireland and relationship director with Morgan McKinley. And where we might start is with uh, immigration, obviously being the main uh, topic which we'll uh, discuss with the Minister after 11. The other one that is making the news, Fergus, is, is housing. And at this stage it is becoming not just a hardy perennial, it's a calcified perennial. It goes on and on and on and on. And what we're hearing from the mail is house targets will increase. Radker says 38,000 homes will be built this year, which leaves us still falling 20-something thousand behind what we need. And 20-something thousand behind what we're capable of, what the capacity is there to build. Um, I, I do, Anton, please forgive me, I do have to tell you, first of all, that I wrote a column in The Examiner, not The Independent. Did um, I say independent? You did. I apologise. Yeah, I write for the Sunday Independent. And I don't write one at all. But anyway, I, I apologise to you. Gina. I apologise to the people of Cork. I apologise to Gina, the wider Gina readership. In, the, despite claims in some newspapers of the country, Gina and I write the columns that the entire nation wants to read. Yes, um, that's the placeholder for well, co- to come okay. and talk I, about I should later. explain this because Fergus <laughs> has teed it up. Now that you've foreshadowed Fergus. The single Fergus. largest, and I'm, I'm, I am, no, I am writing this, the single largest splash headline of the day is on the front of the Irish Mail on Sunday and it reads, Ryan Tuberty, London Diary, the new MOS columnist the whole country wants to read. How a J.K. Rowling novel guided me to the leafy suburb I now call home. Well, let's just jump right into no, that. No, no, That's no, a headline. Don't bury no, the lead. Really, Everybody no, no, wants we, to talk about we, that. No, I think we do need to talk about something serious. <laughs> um, we do. Um, Irish Examiner <laughs> columnist first. <laughs> um, they, I, I mean, I mean, the funny thing is that it's clear that both you and Gina have read this column that the nation apparently wants to read. But anyway, let's not go housing. there. Just housing. Now. We'll start with um, housing. housing. I. I Michael Lee Higgins, I think, sometime last year described this as uh, Ireland's greatest scandal. Um, and, and I think there is no doubt about that. It is the single greatest policy failure probably in my lifetime. I, there, there have been policy failures and scandals of all kinds. But here's this unique thing. You can meet every single government minister over the next 24 hours and they will all tell you that one thing about housing is money's not the issue. There's enough money to build the houses. Money's not the issue. So you say, well, what is the issue? Ah, well, we need to reform the planning laws, but that's not really the issue either. Nobody knows what the issue is. It's like one of those endless wars where nobody has anywhere to go. And do you mind me asking, when you describe it as uh, the single greatest policy uh, failure that you can recall, is it how much of it is a function of the market and the economy, that things bounce back after COVID faster than we expected, that we have inward migration, that we have full employment and that those create a lag in the capacity to house everybody or how much of it is policy well, we went through and a period in, We went through a period in, in Irish history, recent Irish history, where money was cheap and we abused it. That was one of the, one of the causes of this. We went through a period where Political parties, we won't mention any names, we won't bring Charlie McCready into this at all. Political parties decided that housing should be the function, a function only of the private sector and that all housing should be a commodity. They stopped building, for example, they stopped entirely building public housing 
local authority housing. It just stopped completely. Um, and that's one of the one of the problems because one of the things that happened then was the capacity of local authorities was completely stripped away. They had no architects, they had no planners, they had no nothing. Um, our planning laws are completely and absolutely out of date. But here's, I think, one of the fundamental problems, and forgive me for being long-winded, I'm involved in a regeneration programme at the moment. We have a master plan. Uh, the master plan will take 15 years to complete. The reason it will take 15 years to complete is because we were supplied with a thing called a Gantt chart, which is this, this, the whole set of steps laid out. You okay. must have been close to an engineer, Fergus. Oh. <laughs> uh, they, we were supplied with a thing called a Gantt chart, which was to inform us and enlighten us and, and help us along our way. Uh, and it was very informative. And it told us that there were 28 steps that had to be undertaken before we could apply for planning permission, okay? After planning permission, which is a two-year process in our case, um, there are 18 more steps that have to be taken um, before we can turn the planning permission into a builder, before we can hire a builder. Now, public procurement, um, environmental impact assessments, you name it, the number of procedural steps that are involved in in. Uh, a, a regeneration program, which is located where there are building sites now ready to work on now today, and where there is an extraordinary need for housing, uh, and there are people living well, in seventy-year-old houses that are falling apart. That's the bit you know, in this that is surprising. Is whatever about the government saying they're going to increase ha- housing targets? The fact that the CIF, the Construction Industry Federation, is saying we could right now deliver 60,000 a year, that they're quoted as saying that they have enough in the way of resources in terms of builders and the money is there. This is a little mantra of when we talk about housing and I'm on this program or other programs like this, having the last place that I lived in the United States, Colorado, with roughly the same size of population, I actually worked in land use development after my career with CNN and before I'm doing what I'm doing now. And two years planning commission process, as Fergus was just outlining, two months, 59 days is the average for the planning commission process for large master plan housing developments, for mixed use planning, where you've got work, play and retail in the state of Colorado. And that is because there is an efficient process that systematically goes through with the use of technology, with the use of efficiency models, Gantt charts that actually work and move you through a process, there is no reason that developers who are wanting to build in this country should not so, be able to. So you're saying to. in Colorado you can go from a standing start supplying you your documents to authorities and eight weeks later to, have permits to, to build? spades in the ground in 59 days on average, yes, that is correct. And that is, again, a very similar state, agrarian focused capital city where there's a lot of commerce, it's, it's quite similar. So there's models out there, folks that would like to make an overhaul. I've lived here now, I'm going on year 10. This is my full ninth year to be in this country. And it was a crisis when I moved here. So that was after the so Celtic Tiger. So how are we so incapable of solving it? Because I think there is political will that wavers in the wakes of ele- election, this country does not seem to have infrastructure long-term planning 
as an ability for it to actually get underway. When I, I first that- moved here, there was the water crisis, and that's never been readdressed. That got pushed aside. For And there are crises after crises that there's not political will to actually tackle and overhaul John, you and simplify. Uh, first of all, Gina's right with regard to that long-term strategic thing. And I think water is a prime example. But let's just give some credit at the moment. We're waiting for this legislation on the planning, which is going to be the largest overhaul of legislation since the foundation of the state, okay? Which is supposedly going to deal with all of these issues. Now, we're waiting for it to come out. I'm not too sure where it's at. But my understanding is it is really fundamentally going to change and shift this whole issue of the planning restrictions. But back to the point that that, that Fergus said, I suppose, it feels like such a crisis now regarding houses that we're now getting into the anecdotal stuff I was saying earlier on. You walk past the Bank Street Hospital, which I understand that for 18 or 20 million, the building can be converted over a period of whatever time is going to get done to make it fit for purpose of the guard accommodation. It's lying there 15 years vacant, okay? What's the problem that somebody can say, even as a demonstration to people like us making those anecdotal comments to say, we've fixed, we, we've fixed Fergus's lock in the house, it's done. We've got the 20 million for that and it's going to house 280 people. There has to be some logical sense of actually engaging with the people because you do get a sense that, again, people are trying to work very hard to make these things happen. They're going to build these 28, 30,000, 40,000 houses, whatever else. It's moving ahead. It's slow. But at this stage now, if, if you had any political nous at all, we all know the only issue in town at the moment is housing, OK? And the next election, we see now Louise O'Reilly announcing that big developers are really important. Another step of Sinn Féin getting back into the middle again. And we saw again today Mary Lou being lauded for reaching out to Silicon Valley and all the great American organisations saying corporation tax is safe. So I'm just wondering now on the basis that we need money to do any of the things that Sinn Féin want to do where they're going to find the money, I don't this know This is Lisa O'Reilly from Sinn Féin being quoted by John Drennan in the mail saying, absolutely big developers have a place in the housing market. The government talks a lot about the private sector and big developers and big developers absolutely have a place here. And she goes on to say, but it should be the role of the government to fund the council and approve housing bodies to build large-scale social and affordable housing for working people to rent and buy. And in the same story, the mail is a breakdown of the targets mm. and they're increasing the targets. So this year they were meant to do 29,000, they're sticking with that. Next year, they're upping it from 33 to 38. Then the year after, from 34 to 39. But it is going to be 2030 before they hit the 60,000 target, which is what we are told that we need. Ed Fergus, put on the political hat. Are they going to get absolutely caned at the ballot box over this? Um, yes and no, Anton. I, like, I, if you want to talk about the next election, that's a slightly complicated uh, subject. <laughs> um, I, I think it is the biggest live albatross around their neck, politically speaking. Um, that, that and the pseudo-debate about uh, immigration that's going on in Ireland at the moment. Um, pseudo-debate? Yeah. It is a pseudo-debate, yeah. Um, so are we, are we switching we'll come back, back to it. <laughs> um, they're, they're the two big issues that are, that, are going to, um, that are going to shape the election. But the other big issue that will shape the election, the third big issue is who forms the government. That is, that is going to be a very, very decisive issue. Uh, is it going to be Sinn Féin plus or is it going to be the existing government? That's the choice that people are going to be making uh, in the next election. And I wouldn't rule out the the government surviving on that basis, on the basis of that choice. Um, but the other issues are going to do terrible damage. Tech saying, Anton, I, can, I can't believe how it could take so long to build houses between on board planola and judicial review, etc., etc., 
Um, listening to Mandy earlier on in her programme, it is no wonder the late Eddie O'Connor got frustrated with all government quangos, yeah. etc. Red tape is killing the art of entrepreneurship in this country. Another housing and building problem is council. Um, they were made to close their building department. This goes to some extent to what, mm. what Fergus was saying. And then large builders in the early 80s and late 90s let the trades go. They became self-employed. So instead of the firm wanting 15% for the house, now each trade wants 15% profit. And then the main contractor wants their profit on top of that. So it all adds up. Although the CIF is saying the money is there and they could deliver. Well, yeah, look, the CIF, great, wonderful, smashing people. I, I mean... I can remember a time when uh, every building development in Ireland was independently inspected by yeah. the state before, and, you know, passed fit for purpose, et cetera, et cetera. Then we went through this period, and I'm not going to mention Charlie McCreevy's name again, <laughs> where we, we privatised all that. And one of the consequences of that was that all self in, all inspections were self-inspections. <laughs> Developers were building a huge apartment blocks, inspecting them and pronouncing them fit for purpose. And guess what? You know, we had priory halls and we had things like that as a consequence of all Well, when we're talking about the, the intervention yeah. of the private sector, what do you make of it? The Business Post on page six is reporting that there was um, a, not, not a bell camp, I think was the development, a development bell camp of 50 plus, maybe 60 houses, 47 of them bought by a fund controlled by Deutsche Bank. That doesn't strike me as the paradigm that the government would ideally be aiming for, that houses are built and then snapped up by big international investors. Well, I think what's interesting in this one is that, again, we were told this wasn't going to happen. All right. We were told that these houses are going to be built and bought and purchased. And then you look what's happening here now. And Greg Cavan is the builder who b- built them. All right. And one of the big issues goes back again now to the, the central bank and the restrictions with regard to borrowing and the multiples of salaries. OK, so from Greg Cavan's perspective, he couldn't find people who could afford to actually buy and acquire. And what we're just saying was just kind of really kind of quite fascinating these are now being rented for €3,125 a month, the houses, OK? So they've been bought. I'm having this conversation again that there are people who can afford to pay the rent of 3125 who won't get the mortgage. That's 36 grand a year in rent. Look, that's yes. what... I'm probably the only one in this around this table right now who is a renter. And I am in what I'm expecting a lot of these people in this situation with the Deutsche Bank houses that are being rented at that level. That's not to be too... Of revealing, but that's just about a little less than what I pay every single month. So I am in the renter's quagmire. <coughs> I will never get out of paying rent because how can I sock away money simultaneously for pension and for a down payment for a house in this country when the requirements for what percentage based on the Celtic Tiger and all of the deregulate or the overregulation, I think, in many ways of what happened as a as a response to that, that these people, unless you you have a corporate paying for your rent, which some of these mega big companies that they're trying to keep that corporate tax low for will pay for. If you're a private person like me, paying out of your own income that rent, you'll never be able to afford to Which is what this development looks like it was designed for. I mean, these are not big, giant, gated community, flashy houses out in Sorrento Terrace or somewhere. These are very nice family homes. But, 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 but doesn't it so bring us back to this point again, which we've discussed many times before, which is Who's stepping back and having the really clear strategic thinking about all these things being connected? Okay? Right. Uh-huh. And they're not, it's not happening. And, well, you know, no, that's not true, John. Deutsche Bank are stepping back oh, and having a really Yeah, clear. they had a good think about it. And by, the, their and, advantage. And, by way, and by the way, even the way this is presented, 
It's almost like as if they're demonizing these people for participating in a commercial transaction, okay? Yeah, yeah. So we can't do that, okay? Now, does yeah. it, sorry, maybe I, I am undoubtedly naive in this, but does it matter? Because ultimately what you want is the house to be available to rent. Does it matter if it's one single small landlord who's renting it or if it's Deutsche Bank who's renting it out? Maybe it doesn't. And, and there is some reason to believe that these larger entities make better landlords mm-hmm. in, in some senses. But look at the figures. The figures in the paper... The rental roll from these 42 houses will be somewhere of the order of 2 million a year. The total outlay is 24 million. They get their money back in 10 years. I mean, why wouldn't a bank be doing it? Why wouldn't a bank be stepping in and saying, whatever you build, I'll buy? Um, and, and then you have on the other side of the coin, Gina, who will never own her own house, never in this country. Uh, she'll. She I should say Gina is representative of a larger cohort. We're not Indeed. focused exclusively. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's just needs. symbolic Gina, not real <laughs> yeah. Gina. But, but, iconic Gina. <laughs> iconic. <laughs> whose column... The beloved columnist of the Sunday Independent. I think, Anton, what it represents again is the exhausting sense of trying to get our heads around this, OK? There are lots of really bright, intelligent people who can participate in a conversation with regard to being strategic. And back to Gina's point again... We're, I'm still waiting for the water thing to rise again and the 60% of the water that's wasted through rotting pipes that we didn't fix. Correct, correct, because correct. Because people were afraid to put in the, 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 the... Where is that strategic intent? Where is that real strategy? And now we're entering into... And God help us, I know we'll come to the Iowa caucuses now. We're entering into our own election period now. And let's be very clear... Very little is going to happen between now and then. Texting, the answer to the housing issue is simple. Step one, disband on Tashka and on board Pranala. I'm not sure you can disband on Tashka. I think it's, it, isn't it independent and love it its own? So, yeah. much as you might want to, I'm not sure anybody has the power. <laughs> Two, exclude all developers that were bailed out by FF NAMA. Mm. And three, benchmark planners on their turnaround times on viable developments. Now, the reason uh, we were mentioning earlier on that Gina's a columnist, a lot of uh, columnists getting getting very touchy about how many people read their column because the most read column, according, the one that the whole country wants to read is Ryan Tupperty's column on the front of the Irish Mail on Sunday. We will be talking about that in a second. Pages 18 and 19 of the uh, Irish Mail on Sunday are dedicated to Ryan Tupperty's London diary. On a rainy day in Kilburn, I was queuing in Argos when a girl tapped me on the shoulder and asked, are you Ryan Tupperty? Gina, he reveals how he got the gig. I was surprised to discover that after all of the discussions about his agent and the role of his agent, he got the gig entirely by coincidence. So he says, pause. (laughs) Look, what he writes is what he writes. And let's be very fair to the biggest celebrity in broadcast to this country. Sorry, Anton, you're second. Oh, go ahead. People (laughs) like to read the lives of celebrities. People get the newspapers and all the little magazines and look at the Instagram photos because we like to think we're close to these people. So the fact that now Brian Tuberty, who was the Late Late Show presenter forever, who had his own radio broadcast, who fell from grace, whatever you want to describe it, this past summer, now has landed on his feet, some would say with not as much underneath it as he did over here but he did land in a tel- in a radio gig now he has a column well done for him to have two pages with lots of photos and people are going to read it why not i mean that's what is good for him people are going to read it it's good for the mail it's why why not it's, what does it reveal that we didn't already know okay well i think what's interesting is that this whole issue of irish the irish and britain and the british irish relationship 
Graham Norton's been gone too long in many respects and he's become kind of part of the... So Ryan is now, it feels like, the kind of the, back to the Terry Wogan and the Eamon Andrews sort of thing. He's the new guy in town. To me, one, I think the Mail on Sunday deserve credit. They've done him. They've got him. He's in. Now, how sustainable it's going to be with regard to content and the excitement of the life that you lead, I mean, is going to be interesting. So, as you said, week five, six and seven, what are we going to be listening to here but I actually think that Ryan Tubley could use this in a really, really interesting way with regard to investigating that whole dynamic between Britain and Ireland in the current environment. And I think he has that sort of a journalistic approach that might actually help us get some insight beyond the avocado toast breakfast and who he's meeting for <laughs> drinks for cocktails. You think and the, the, the Mail on Sunday reader is salivating at the prospect of an analysis of British-Irish relations? On on Anton, there you are again. I mean, judging, judging, judging. I think, <laughs> Open I, question. I, I, think, answer I, yes. I just think it's going to be an interesting vehicle and I think that it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of this. Now, well, what I, comes out of this one? This is his first one. What what was revealed in it that you found intriguing? Nothing. I found nothing. Nothing. Yeah, nothing, nothing. intriguing. The yeah. only thing that was revealed in it, <laughs> you'll have to forgive me, we all read this because you made us. The only thing that was revealed in it is that Ryan, who I always thought was a wonderful broadcaster, is a lousy writer. <laughs> he cannot write. And if he's going to write twaddle like that week after week after week nobody's going to read it nobody it's nonsense it's just oh god I can't but how do you feel words. about it how do you really feel about it <laughs> don't no, candy look he he, ha- he has a platform and he's going to use it. And, and why would we begrudge that? When he choose- and I will, I will actually go one step in the Ryan can write column because I did read his JFK in Ireland book when I first arrived here and I thought it was strong. Yeah. And I enjoyed it from that perspective. And I would know Ryan personally, so not, not that that's pl- – I'm trying to be objective here. Is that something that I would want to read every week? Probably not, but people are interested in, in that sort of thing. And so – why not? My daughter say, watches the Kardashians. They won't be interested long. <laughs> I was intrigued by the process of the gig because he reveals how he got the gig. He says that he, he was... He said how he got the gig. Whether or not that's exactly how it happened is for others You're to... You're very cynical, Gina. Trust but verify, Anton. Well, what he, what he asserts is that he was in London and Chris discovered... Uh, he hadn't heard from Chris, he says, for a long time. When he heard he was in London, he invited me for a coffee after the show... And then surprisingly put him on the show. He didn't realise that he was going to be on the programme. He was then put on the programme. And then as he was walking out, the manager of the station said, God, now that you're here, we might give you a gig. It's a lovely story. Fab. <laughs> next, next. Can I put next. a thing to you, though? If, if we look, at the, there was mention earlier on of Eamon Andrews and Terry Wogan. One yes. of the things that always happens when you are a celebrity broadcaster in Ireland and when you go to the UK, there is the equivalent, in historical terms, of the American wake. You are dead to us. Terry Wogan had the single largest radio audience in Europe, not in the UK, in Europe, and we paid no attention whatsoever because he had gone across the mm. water. And he's he wasn't to- gay. And he wasn't gay. He wasn't here. We had he our Terry Wogan here. here. He was <laughs> gay. Graham Norton is the biggest thing in UK TV chat shows. He's Irish. And again, we largely ignore him. We don't dedicate huge pages to him in the papers because he's gone across the water. Is Ryan going to be the one who breaks that pattern and keeps our interest and affection despite being in the I UK? think so. Let's Maybe see. because I think, Let's well, see. I don't know, was Wogan's, was his radio thing also broadcast here in Ireland? Because the, no, the thing no, about Tuberty is he's got Q102 as well. So he is heard by the Irish and the Irish were all calling in on his first 
couple of weeks. And I didn't actually hear as many people from the UK side tuning in, frankly. And a member of Ontario Wogan. So he needs the Irish to propel him because they they know him here. But But there is a thing called begrudgery in this country. And when I first moved here and would mention, oh, I really like you too, people would go, oh, you too. I knew him. And I'm like, oh my God, really? You too? I thought they were globally The phrase you're looking for is when he had no arse in his trousers. Oh my God. The dandelion market, yeah. yeah. I I, I think, George, at the end of the day, having gone through the last 12 months of the appallingness that was that RTE drudge every week, I think Ryan Tubby deserves all the luck in the world with regards to his new job in the UK. And all I'm saying is that I think back to what there's the most read, I don't know, but let me tell you, he's a guy who deserved a break, he's got it, and I think he's going to do brilliantly. I totally agree with that. I think he's a smashing lovely fella, but I think it is one of the most boring columns I have ever read in my life. So please read Fergus's column. (laughs) Just watching Fergus gradually turn into Eeyore over here with sadness about having to discuss this is starting to overwhelm me. So we will move on in a minute, Fergus. Before that, there is a related story, which goes to the RTE issue, which is who is going to replace Ryan in Ryan's old show on Radio 1. And it seems that salary issues are starting to bite because Oliver Callan, according to the Indo, is the chosen successor. And there are contract issues because the remuneration may not be enough. But I think it's, it's not the remuneration, as I understand. It's potentially the fact that he's not allowed to do all the other stuff that he wants to do with regard to where he makes his <coughs> money, which is the, the speaking, the stand up, the events and everything else. But sorry, to to, to, uh, clarify, it is the loss that he will incur from not being able to do corporate gigs will not be covered by the salary he'll get if he gets the gig. Then if I was Oliver Calvin, I'd be saying good luck and thank you very much. I mean, we've all, I think probably most of us have seen Oliver Calvin in one way or another at a corporate gig or a charity gig or whatever. And it's what he does and it's what he does brilliantly and it's what he does best. And if somebody said to me, yeah, I'll give you whatever I'm going to give you, 200 grand a year or something, but everything else is gone. Uh, you're beholden to us now and to nobody else. I'd be saying no thanks. But we know but it's not a sniff at that because we know Tuberty was at 170, so it has to be south of that. Yeah. So I would imagine that Oliver does very well out of corporate gigs. But then if they don't resolve it, they won't have and Oliver And he's very good at it. They, they and won't have Oliver And it's his, it's his meat and drink. And you're, if you're trying to say to somebody, we're taking away your meat and drink in order to give you a fixed contract, no, you're not going to take it, I wouldn't think. I wouldn't. I Agreed. You're not it. starting out to try to use this to propel your career because he has a career and he's got a portfolio of things that he does. And so why would he want to put this in and then lose everything else? I think Look, it if wouldn't make any sense. Shout, if they want to give me a shout, I'd, you know. I'd, I'd <laughs> Consider your name in the ring, John. <laughs> uh, does that mean then that RTE needs to be a little bit more laissez-faire about no, allowing no, presenters to do he's, corporate he's, stuff? Because he, he's... Oliver Callan is now in a sort of heads you lose, tails you lose situation. Mm. If if he wins this battle and gets the kind of contract he wants, he'll be forever under scrutiny. Yeah. He's presenting a show. Who last night, what? last yeah, night yeah. he did a, a you know corporate gig for Good Bodies. What what influence have Good Bodies on the show, or yeah. whoever it might be? Is he, he'll is be he, forever is he under with that. Kind of scrutiny. <laughs> yeah. Have to worry yeah. about. Tech saying I didn't watch the Late Late Show or listen to Tuberty on radio, but I've never heard so much begrudgery before. Um, and then uh, directly after it, the last person I want to read about is Tuberty talking about himself again. And the last thing I want to read is the Daily Mail. Well, apparently you're alone. The whole country <laughs> wants to read about it, according to the Daily Mail. Anyway, we will park Ryan and we will park uh, issues relating to media, except one, which is uh, an interesting piece in, uh, inside uh, the Daily Mail relating to fake news. Because yeah. there was a, an expert on um, AI asked about the implications of it. This is uh, Professor Barry O'Sullivan who has been on this show a number of times and he says that 
machines taking over the world isn't the, the risk. Disinformation and misinformation is the risk. Again, Fergus, with the political hat back on, how concerned are you that we walk into an election season where we have social media that has the capacity to pour poison in ears in a way that we haven't seen in, in years well, before? It, it wouldn't be entirely true to say we've never seen it before, but we're going, to see it, we're going to see it on a scale that I think is completely unprecedented and it'll come from all sides. I have no idea what our political parties are doing in this space, but I'm absolutely certain they all have advice being poured into them about how to manipulate and how to use and so on. But we saw it during Brexit. We saw it uh, in the last US presidential election. We saw the manipulation of information, the misuse of information, the spreading of disinformation. Uh, we see it constantly um, with the emergence of, you know, I don't want to use expressions like the far right in Ireland, but there are certain entities in Ireland that are morning, noon and night spreading lies and disinformation. Um, and there are social media platforms facilitating them before you get near artificial intelligence. Yeah. Well, can I, give you, you, can I just start. give you a recent case in point because we're, we're, we're going to be talking in a while about the, the Iowa caucuses. One of the um, candidates for the GOP nomination, obviously doesn't have a sniff, none of them do bar for Trump, but Vivica uh, Ramaswamy um, had been attacked by Trump and he tweeted last night, um, he said, we have to open our eyes. In the last election, it was a man-made pandemic and big tech election interference. Now the same billionaires funding lawsuits against Trump are the ones trying to prop up Nikki Haley. Now that is complete misinformation. There's no other way to characterise it. It has so far had 5.7 million views. How do you counter something like that? Well, you can't in the immediate term. Um, I mean, 20 years ago, I was involved with a number of people in trying to persuade the government here to develop an aspect of media literacy as part of our school curriculum uh, to enable youngsters and as they grow older kids uh, to become much more critically aware of what they're reading and absorbing and so on. Media literacy is non-existent. Um, for, you know, we, we absorb endless amounts of stuff. We spent the hour before we came on air here all glued to our phones, trying to figure this out and send that and so on. Um, and we absorb endless amounts of stuff. And we, we've no judgment at all about it. We've no, absolutely no judgment about what's real and what isn't. I saw uh, recently, I'm, I'm fascinated by what's going on in British politics at the moment. Mm-hmm. I've followed it. The number of things, for example, that I've seen about Keir Starmer. Yeah. Um, awful things about Keir Starmer. Dreadful things. Not a single one of them true. But very convincingly portrayed the voice, the face, all of that. Uh, and I'm not going to dignify them by repeating exactly what they were, but but you would never vote for the man or anything he runs if you believed in any of this kind of stuff. And that's coming out more and more and more. And we've seen and it in Ireland. This isn't an exclusively UK or US thing. We've seen, if you look at the immigration debate, there have been f- yeah. footage doing the rounds saying, here are um, military-age men being dropped off at a refugee centre and, and videos of buses. And then you realise that was a separate incident six years ago, mm. entirely unrelated. Not in Ireland at all. Yeah, but and by it, the time that gets realised, it's gone. And this is the, the point that Barry O'Sullivan and other AI impact experts are making, and it is absolutely jaw-dropping and we should all be actually really concerned because here we are in 2024, which is, I've been calling it, it's the democracy Super Bowl. More people are voting, half the world's population is voting for democracy or 
authoritarianists. We don't know. I mean, thank goodness we had Taiwan voted for the third consecutive year or their third consecutive election yeah. for the Democratic Progressive Party. So that was in the wake of or in the pressure under pressure from China. They're still going democ- democracy. But when you think about the Vivek Ramachami that you just mentioned, his tweet, which was from a real person, which was misinformation, the exponential level of which you can get AI bots to put out the deep fakes and put out misinformation. Just a couple of weeks ago when the Jeffrey Epstein list came out, before that I was at the hair salon with the well, I shouldn't say this because I don't want to get this person in trouble, but there was a person who spoke at the salon, I will not name, talking about how she was positive Oprah Winfrey was on the list before it came out and that she had taken a million dollars and gone off to Sweden because she was going to be arrested for being – I was like, whoa, 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 where did you get this? Well, from TikTok, really? You're not a 15-year-old that's on TikTok? No, but I'm on it and I'm listening and it is – Absolutely wasn't true, and it's endemic. Absolutely, I mean, it, it, had it's but, endemic. But That's it's, it's, the, it's ultimately, and this was frightening at the moment. And you spoke with that democratic Super Bowl thing. Democracy feels so under threat and so fragile at the moment. Okay, and I wrote down that, 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 those words you made: the critical thinking thing. Where do you go to source your information? We've got three columnists around the table here, and we can trust most of what you've got to say. All right, where do you go to find that information? All of it, all of it, John. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you, Fergus. So <laughs> the point is that. This is such a big thing. We've come to the caucus thing now in the moment of the States, OK? Democracy is under threat. What regulation can you put in place? What authorities can intervene and say, that's wrong, you've got to withdraw it, and you've got to correct it, and you've got to take it down, OK? You know, and the answer is, I don't know. There Governments are some mechanisms. have never been able to yeah, regulate yeah, yeah. an outpaced technology. Yeah. That's unfortunately so, so, so the truth. So really, I suppose, again, frightening is in light of the fact that we're so distracted with what's happening in Palestine and Israel and Ukraine, and we're all, our heads are fried, OK? This, to me, is one of the most important things that's happening in the context of the world that we're in, whether it's with education, society, community and how we live and, again, politics. And if we don't get it right, the decisions that we make, I think we made a comment earlier on, there's three billion people this year voting in important elections around the world that could shift and change the structure of democracy, as we know it, good, bad and different as others, in, in a way that actually makes it irretrievable for us. OK, so there's some really big thinking that needs to take place. We were talking earlier on today about the early in the show about the Irish government thinking big, but the world has to think big. Where's the UN? Where are all these great organizations, the IMF, whatever, the World Bank? Where is the big thinking taking place? Because at the moment it feels really, really fragile. And of course, one of the big issues that goes with that is that there is a lot of money in not fixing any of this yes. because there is big business in a lot of the social media platforms that depend on engagement. And they have said themselves the more that you rile people up, the more engagement that you get and misinformation and disinformation helps with that. OK, to Gina's point about the Democracy Super Bowl, it kicks off tomorrow in uh, Iowa with the Iowa caucuses and this being the Republicans' party's first shot at choosing who they want their nominee to be. We'll talk about that after this break. All right, so as Gina put it, sorry, I should say, Gina being Gina London, uh, communications strategist, former CNN correspondent. With her is John Cunningham, who is a relationship director with Morgan McKinley and former chair of the Immigrant Council of Ireland, and Fergus Finlay, who is a columnist in uh, the Irish Examiner, the columnist the whole country wants to read, I should say. You described what was coming up this year as the 
Super Bowl of democracy. One of the critical parts of that is what's happening in the US and tomorrow we see the Iowa caucus. For those unfamiliar, a caucus is what? Oh, a caucus is a wacky... It's been going on for over a hundred years and imagine a bunch of people coming together in school gymnasiums and church basements. It is not like a primary where you're going and putting in a secret ballot and and you're voting like in a regular election. You're actually coming personally together with your party chairs who are speaking on behalf of Nikki Haley, of Ron DeSantis, of, of course, former President Donald Trump, and trying to get an actual in-person agreement consensus that then they take out. And that's how we actually get what are the preferences. And from what the is caucus. the point of this when no conclusion has ever been so foregone? Well, the look, Iowa, as uh, interestingly on Jimmy Kimmel, the talk show host in the US, he did a very funny bit a couple of days ago asking regular Americans to point out where Iowa is on a map and nobody could do it. So Iowa is not the first because it's the biggest, it's the biggest because it's the first. So it's the first headline that we're going to get when Iowa comes forward. And interestingly, on what is expected to be the coldest caucus in history, because there is an incredible freeze going on in the Midwest. I'm from Indiana, not Iowa, often confused, but I have covered the Iowa caucus. And so what happens out of it is you get a preference, you get some headlines, and you're off then to the next real, or the first legitimate primary, actual primary, which is in New Hampshire. Then you go on to Super Tuesday. And by the time you get to March, you pretty much know who your official primary candidate and is And I assume at this point that one of the things that matters is a sense of momentum. We've seen Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor, drop out, out because it was evident he didn't have it. When you look at the numbers, it, we all know Nikki Haley doesn't have a sniff, neither does Ron DeSantis. But Trump needs this to be a fairly commanding victory to cause them to admit it and quit. Isn't that it? Well, yes, but there's an it's an interesting thing because again, you don't know who's going to turn out yeah. tomorrow because of the because of the cold. You actually have to physically be present in order to be counted at these things. So, let's say the cold keeps people away, let's see the more. Yeah, oh, and by the way, interestingly, you can actually register for the Republican Party day of. If you're a Democrat, you can switch. Day of, you can actually switch if you're you can declare yourself as a GOP member on as an independent day of just for the caucus. So that's an interesting little nugget. So Potentially, you could come out and move things in a different direction. Let's just see what they what the parties actually move. But, for example, Ron DeSantis was actually endorsed by the governor of Iowa. So mm-hmm. he actually has some support in that state. We'll see if it comes through. If the margins are less than 20 percent between Trump and the next person, you might see a little bit of that momentum. I don't think you're going to see anybody drop out from Iowa, but you're going to see certainly with 91 counts against him and all the different cases and things, you'll see if the real people who make a difference and put their voices to who they want are influenced different than what the polls are saying currently. It's about, it's about the money. Surely the Iowa, all Iowa does is unleash the money that's waiting to see who's going to support whom. And they're waiting to decide who's going to give that momentum to the next phase of the process. So, I mean, I mean, what's fascinating in reading about Iowa is you know, it's a place you can't even fly to directly. OK, it's obviously a place that's in the relevance of the United States is really kind of something kind of quite a, of an outback. But, you know, the person who comes first is the person who's going to get the money pouring in behind them. Well, sure, we all know who that is. I, I, and yeah, I, I, I hope you're right. You know, I hope that wasn't wishful thinking that I was listening to there. Because it's I mean, on the basis thinking, of Fergus, it's been wishful on, thinking uh, since 2016. On the basis of the figures that are in the papers, um, he, Trump is going to get as many votes out of Iowa as every other candidate Combined. put together. 
all of the other candidates put together, including people whose names I can't pronounce. I'm full of admiration for you managing to get <laughs> both elements of Vivek's name um, uh, it, there. And I, I mean, it's like it's it's mind boggling. There's a fascinating piece. I know we're not supposed to be uh, led and said by anything now, but there's a fascinating piece on the CNN website today, which quotes most of the former senior people who worked for Trump. Um, uh, one after the other saying he's the most dangerous man who's ever <laughs> run for office. It, it is the single worst thing we could do, etc., etc. Every single one of them are John Kelly, generals, <laughs> every single one. Well, can I ask a question about that? Because there is this sort of sense that Trump is the the cause and catalyst of a viewpoint in America. Is he not the result of it? Does it matter who is the representative if what you have is an electorate that hold the views they evidently do? Um, it doesn't at one level. It doesn't at one level. But he's not just the representative. He's fanned those flames. He, he but have they not always been fires. there? Oh, they have. Of course they have. There's always been division. And, and American politics has become more and more and more divided um, certainly since Clinton, certainly since... Obama. Oh, but even if we go back, I mean, Gene, if you go back to Nixon's Southern strategy, that was an overt <coughs> strategy to use racism to win the presidential election. That was not my view. That's the view of the GOP chair in 2006. He apologised for the Southern strategy that Nixon took. Prior to that, you had quasi-apartheid with the Jim Crow laws. So how is this any different to what we have seen because in Because it was, it was, it was quiet. The Southern strategy was quiet and it was discreet. Yes, it was real. Uh, but, but it was quiet and it was discreet. And it was countered. I think it's revealed and it's unapologetic and it's wildfire. And I also don't think that people who have already sold their souls can now go back and say, that, oh, we're sorry that we struck a deal with the devil. Mm-hmm. When you had the Carl Rove's who were manipulating the situation in, in Iraq, when you've had the types of manipulation, and, and frankly, the, the Democrats are, are to blame too because they haven't gotten their act together in terms of a moderate message that actually galvanizes the independents to be declaring themselves as Democrats. In fact, just this last week, there was a poll that came out that showed there are more independents identifying than ever before, which has actually come at the at the sake of the, the Democrats. So their numbers as identifiers as a block of voters is actually lower than, than in, in history, as I recall it. And the point, though, is that you've got a vitriolic situation in which democracy is hinging upon. And that is really what's at stake, is are you putting your vote in with a largely unhinged individual, but as you said, is reflective of a, of a greater whole, or are you putting your vote in But have we not always democracy? seen in America a situation? I mean, if you look at the Republican Party core support, there are Republicans, conservative Republicans, small government, low-tax Republicans. They will always vote Republican no matter what. There are the evangelicals who are won over Actually, by Actually, not so in this situation. And I will use just one anecdote as a prime example. My mother, who voted for Trump in 2016 and 20. 2020, who is an evangelical, who is a single issue anti-abortion voter, has told me she will not not vote because she is certainly that's her her right and her, her political responsibility. She is going to be voting for Biden in this upcoming election because 100 percent of the insurrection and this person's his this person's ability to incredibly destabilize. The as a pro-life evangelical, she is vote voting for, for Biden. Is she alone? Do you think? I don't think so. Mm. And I think that's what you're seeing: is that the people that are the mm. actual, we 
put democracy, we put this country, I think that we're going to hopefully see a shift in what's happening with this MAGA type of... Uh, and January uh, uh, 6th was the catalyst for her for, change that was the That was the one. The insurrection was the... The, the storming of the Capitol was enough And Gina, what's, this, what's the percentage of what we call independents that have kind of identified themselves as part of this election? Because certainly to me, as I look from the outside, the thing that really triggered was that Roe versus Wade piece, okay? And his absolute, Trump's absolute enthusiasm for it and the fact that I did it, nobody else could right. do it, okay? Are those independent voters potentially going to really kind of sway this and maybe upset the apple cart completely? The swing vote has always been something that's been, that the Republicans and Democrats have been clamoring for and this time more than ever because they are going to make the difference in this upcoming election. One of the things I always find fascinating when you look at the electoral um, patterns in the US, I think if the same thing happened in Ireland, we would regard it as a fundamental crisis of democracy. If you had one racial group that 90% voted in one direction, you'd say this is such a fundamental flaw, we have to do everything. But it's never questioned. The fact that I think it was 88% of black people in America voted for the Democrats, and that's an extraordinary schism, isn't it? Or was it that 88% of black people voted against the Republicans? But either way, you would have to say this this must be fixed, and it is never even a topic for discussion. But what about about Irish farmers? Come on. What about Irish farmers? <laughs> Sorry, what about That's Irish racially stereotyping. <laughs> <laughs> One that we had the time to get into Fergus's feelings about Irish farmers. Unfortunately, we don't. If you want to get in touch with the show, 53106 at a cost of 30 cents, you can get us 87 106 A big thank you to Gina London, who is an international communication strategist and award-winning CNN correspondent. John, and a columnist for the Sunday Independent. And a columnist for the Sunday Independent. John Cunningham, uh, former chair of the Immigrant Council of Ireland, relationship director with Morgan McKinley. And uh, Fergus Finlay, columnist with the Irish Examiner. The Anton Savage Show. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday mornings from 10. On News Talk.